The only way I see it working is if owning an esports team is like in traditional sports, someone who's extremely rich and they find it fun in managing the team. And so you're not expecting it to be profitable. You're expecting to get some fun out of it, you know, similar to what F1 is. Hi friends, welcome to the Navi Gaming Roundtable. This is the one podcast to stay up to date with all the latest game business news. And today I'm joined by Aaron Bush, co-founder of Navic, Tammy Levy, Chief Games Officer at Captain TV, and David Kay, who is going to self-intro. <laughs> Hi, uh, yes, I am presently the uh, president of Snapshot Games, uh, which is a 75-person uh, PC and console game studio uh, based in LA and Sofia, Bulgaria. Uh, we were acquired by Embracer in uh, 2020, so we're part of the, the behemoth over there. Um, I've spent most of my career uh, over the past couple of decades building uh, game companies, uh, mostly as a founder. First game I worked on, I started out as a game designer. I was actually one of the first free-to-play games, which was a text, a text mud uh, called Akea, still running today. Um, across my career, I've worked on social games, mobile games, console and, uh, and PC games. So yeah, excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for being here. That is a long list of accomplishments in gaming. Uh, you know, I've been knocking around for a while. <laughs> cool. And Tammy, I hear you, have, you also have some good news. Captain TV announced a new game. Yes, we, we announced uh, the game that I've been primarily focused on called Nitro Stream Raising. Uh, we went into closed alpha last week and... Um, Kind of for context, what we're building over here at Captain TV is a new genre of games for streamers and their communities to play together. Our games really are designed from the foundation to think about streamer and audience interactivity. Um, so Nitro is a racing game, a car racing game. The The tagline is a mouthful, but it's, it's a <laughs> high-speed streamer-hosted chat plays racing game. So Whoa. what does that mean? That means that you can go to Twitch and look for a streamer that is playing Nitro, watch and follow their stream. And the way that you engage and participate in the races is by simply uh, entering exclamation play in chat. That gets you into race. We have like slight interactivity there where you can just fire up boosts and stuff to create chaos in the during the race. We also have kind of like a companion website uh, on playnitro.com to do a little bit more customization. And we're going to add a metagame layer to, uh, you know, your card progression, your character progression. But it's it's really fun, chaotic, and it's pure mayhem when you when you watch these races. Uh, what's really cool is that we were also able to really partner with content creators of all sizes from uh, Ludwig. If, if people are familiar with that name, uh, Norline, who's like very much in like game review type um, content creation. Quarter uh, Jade, she plays a lot of uh, Valorant. So kind of hitting like different segments uh, of like the big streamers and then hundreds of streamers from our own community um, that have already been able to grow their communities with uh, some of our other games. So yeah. it's very exciting. And, it is. Uh, the game looks gorgeous, so we're we're very. It, it is very fun, so we're very. Excited I watched. About it. I actually watched one of the streams. It was <laughs> chaos. It was personified. It was actually really fun, <laughs> just seeing the cars all fall off a cliff and explosions happening. Cool. Well, congratulations. Um, I hope the launch goes well. And we're going to jump into the roundtable discussion. So today we're going to be reviewing uh, Microsoft and EA's earnings. It's our favorite season to do some earnings analysis. We're going to check the profit pulse of esports, dive into some news I've been banging around there. And also, if we have some time, we'll try to complete last week's Playtika discussion with their latest Web3 announcement because it came in the day after we recorded. So we're here to catch up. All right, Tammy. What's up with Metacore? Yeah, so next update here is uh, Metacore acquiring Supercell's Everdale. And this was uh, announced this last week. 
there were no details really about the the deal in terms of you know what what the structure looks like, what the cost was. But I think what's really interesting about this is that we it, second chances are so rare in game dev. Like we you know, we launch games, they uh, don't hit whatever targets a specific company has, and you know we just shut down games, and and it's it's very hard uh, to do that. Um, so it's a very interesting case study almost that that will be able to analyze and on whether you know metacore can take this uh you know baseline and an ip that supercell developed with everdale and you know kind of relaunch it and and build it back up uh based on what what supercell learned from their soft launch with with everdale what's true is that what's a good business for one company you know say supercell that makes hundreds of millions of dollars a year uh is very different like just like the expectations and you know your your gates to to turn it into a successful business very different from that to something someone like metacore that they're starting to build their portfolio of games they have talked about uh like they've outlined their portfolio strategy where they want to you know focus on more than just one game hit uh multiple genres and uh, you know, right now they only have merge mansion, which makes you know, fifty million, uh, around fifty million a year, which is a great business, right? But it's it's just like scales are very different. So it'll be it'll be very interesting to see what happens here. I think what's um, the the last point I'll make here is that what is really interesting as well is that uh, Supercell has invested in Metacore, so there's also kind of like an added layer there to this this deal because metacore is part of supercell's portfolio of studios um and the the studios that they've invested into so they received you know 15 million euro in in funding in 2020 and then a line of credit in 2021 for like 150 million euro um so for supercell you know metacore success is their success as well um so you kind of can start uh gleaning a little bit of like you know the game probably had some really good and positive traction, but just not at the level that you know Supercell would want to invest their own team into. But worth you know doing kind of like another take on on the game. Um, I don't know if, if you have any additional thoughts on this. Yeah, I didn't fully understand. So did Metacore acquire the game from Supercell? Because from what I read, it seemed like they took on the mantle, but that there wasn't really a financial transaction. So there's no details uh, yeah. about whether there was like a financial transaction, what kind of like deal it is. It's just uh, Metacore has has taken over the game from from Supercell. Uh, so we don't we don't yeah. really have any any confirmation. It could be like a publishing agreement. It could be just them taking it over mm-hmm. uh, for 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 free. Like we don't we don't really have. Uh, any any confirmation or any details on on that front, yeah. um, but I do think like it's probably a whatever type of structure it is. It is a sweetheart structure just from mm-hmm. being you know part of that Supercell portfolio of, of companies. It's a no brainer for Supercell, right? Just from the standpoint of like, oh, you weren't going to do this thing, so you can ha- whatever the financial terms are. It's better than zero, right? Um, and so from them, I mean, I think it's. Uh, it's a better outcome than it would have been. I will say I'm a little skeptical uh, that this is going to really turn out to be a great win for Metacore. And I could be totally wrong, but um, when, when you look at Everdale itself, what made it unique was that it optimized for a large number of, of player check-ins rather than a large amount of time spent playing. Um, and Herschel, who wrote a deconstruction of this for Novik Pro several months ago, um, you know, he noted that it's just not clear that prioritizing like number of check-ins over like how much time people actually spend in the game, like can lead to a a workable business model. Like there was no sign of that 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 really working um, at the time. And so I'm I'm gonna make a bold uh, guess here prediction. Okay, but my my prediction is that what Metacore is going to bet into is completely revamp of the systems. Yeah, mm. and they take the art, the charm. 
cap, which is what people were excited about, like the idea of like this very charming farming game that we haven't seen in in a while, and go a little bit like a completely different route in terms of game systems and potentially like go more traditional like farming type type game. Uh, so that that would be that would be my guess on where if Everdale ends up being a success, where it ends up in in lands. Yeah. I really support that prediction because Metacore is expert at building strong metagames. They even state that the the core gameplay is less important than building a really strong metagame. And so I think they have the freedom to change that. We've seen that with Merge Mansions. They've created this whole new type of cinematic high quality uh, ads for the game that tell a story. And like there's a massive amount of lore and the ads (laughs) granny has just become a culture thing for people who watch ads in games. And then additional to that, I also see how, you know, looking at Merge Mansion, sorry, Merge Mansions KPIs, how they're unlocking new countries and how they're being able to scale. I think I'm more bullish than you, Aaron. I'll side with Tammy here. No, I think I probably agree with that prediction. I don't think the game as it was is mm. the future of of where this is going. Um, but of course, anytime you really have to rebuild a game from scratch, you know, you also increase the the risk, I think. True. Um, so, so I don't know. Yeah, not not an easy layup, I think. But I guess we'll see. Yeah, we'll Metacore doesn't have an easy feat here, but it'll be interesting to see where where they land with um, Everdale. They also haven't promised that it will work work out. So yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, ah, <laughs> we'll see if this works out. So. <laughs> Well, yeah, look, look forward to, to seeing what happens there. And then on to the next update, uh, PSVR 2 slash sales expectations. So in the last couple of roundtables, we assessed that the market for VR is actually still really an early in adoption. And that, that would continue to be the case for PlayStation's VR 2 system. And yeah, they reportedly reduced, reduced the sales projections for the launch after receiving fewer pre-orders than expected. If you try to buy one now, there's no waiting list. Um, it was also reported that they actually slashed production, but Sony came out and refuted that they have not slashed production numbers. Additionally, so the reasons that um, seem pointing to the low number of sales unexpected is that the price point is higher than buying a PlayStation, which is something that we addressed, and also the lack of compatibility with other platforms. Because if you acquire, for example, a MetaQuest, you can play that across multiple platforms and, and uh, systems, but not the PlayStation. <laughs> Yeah, we largely called that. David, I'm curious on the the bull bear spectrum of VR, where where do you fall on this? It's really tough. The the history of the games industry, the expansion of the games industry has really been reducing friction has allowed new customers to enter the market. And I think the problem with VR still and it's been kind of caught in this trap for a, for a long time now is the friction is still just too high and there's friction on multiple dimensions it's friction in terms of the 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 price of entry which is clearly hurting their their adoption and there's a lot of friction around the user experience of course and so VR is still i think trapped in this chicken and egg of it's a very high friction thing, which means that developers are not highly incentivized to develop for it. And, and so adoption is slower because there's no, there's, there's no content that's, that's really the, the kind of killer app that, that, that drives a huge amount of adoption. So I, I don't know. I think I, I'm still, I think w- what we're all still waiting for, and, and maybe this is maybe Meta is going to deliver this to us you know, at the back end of tens of billions of dollars more of uh, hardware R&D is a device which is the which has the low friction of a of, a, of an entry price that that people will pay um, but also is low friction as a as a user experience so that it can find a space in people's day to day in the way that other devices that have massive adoption have done. So until that happens, I think VR is is kind of stuck in a in in the same place. 
Yeah, I think that's well said. I just want to give a, a shout out. Matthew Ball, he wrote a recent essay called Why VRAR Gets Farther Away As It Comes Into Focus. It, it was a really good read and I think sums up kind of the state of this industry really well. And a lot of it echoes what, what David was just saying, where basically like the challenge is you need essentially a computer that's more powerful <laughs> than your computer into a compact thing that goes on your head. And that's just like an enormously challenging thing to do that, yes, takes tens of billions in R&D to, to figure out. So um, yeah, super fascinating. But yeah, with PlayStation, not a surprise. We kind of we kind of called it not specifically yeah. that they'd cut sales so soon, but you know, that it wouldn't, wouldn't be a huge hit. I wish I could say we we're moving on to happier lands, but unfortunately, we are not. Aaron, <laughs> it's only getting worse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Let me pull up my notes real fast. So, um, EA just reported its quarterly results, and I won't dig into all the numbers here, um, which many people found underperforming. But the main headline is that EA is shutting down Apex Legends Mobile, is shutting down Industrial Toys which um, includes canceling the upcoming Battlefield mobile game. And uh, this is resulting in layoffs. So um, a bunch of pretty bad news here. And first of all, you know, our thoughts go out to everyone who is affected by these layoffs and is seeing their, their hard work get shut down. That's always tough to see and go through. Um, but I mean, in general, when looking at EA, this is just another big step back for EA Mobile, which has been struggling forever to acquire, build, partner, manage, and grow you know, a successful mobile business. And we did kind of see the writing on the wall with Apex Legends Mobile. And while the game is really good, it won awards um, and, and genuinely is one of my favorite mobile games, um, we did recognize that as a revenue driver, it uh, was pretty clearly underperforming, which is also something that um, in my opinion, EA leadership failed to be super transparent about with investors too. Um, and I can't speak too much to industrial toys and Battlefield Mobile, um, <clears throat> especially since Battlefield Mobile hadn't fully launched yet. But it seems like the so-called lessons learned from Apex are being extrapolated to, to Battlefield 2. And um, with Apex, what's weird is that management in the earnings call said that they quote have plans to reimagine a connected apex mobile experience in the future end quote so i guess we'll eventually see what that means but it also makes me wonder if they want to reset or abandon partner relationships and bring everything together more in-house and in a more specific cross-platform kind of way that connects the the games more so um, Apex Mobile was co-developed with Tencent. And it's just interesting because Call of Duty is sort of going through the same thing, building a new fully owned mobile Warzone game that will mm -hmm. compete with Call of Duty Mobile, um, which is also co-developed by Tencent. And you know, maybe if Warzone is deemed successful, Activision will want to consolidate its um, Call of Duty mobile efforts there too. So, you know, in general, I feel like we're seeing the pendulum swing from heavily relying on co-development partners for these kinds of games back to building more in-house with greater emphasis on cross-platform connections. I don't know if it'll work. It's, it's purely an execution question, um, but that's that's what I, I think we're seeing in these two cases at least. So anyways, tough day for, for EA Mobile, um, and we'll see where these franchises go next. Yes, I think so. I believe Battlefield was already being soft launched in a handful of countries, so they could have seen the beginning of KPIs that were not promising, and they did. They did specify that Apex being a standalone game that had no connection to the very successful console game, that you have a battle pass and those are not connected. And then we look at what Call of Duty Warzone is planning on doing, which it is. It's not a cross play where you're multiplayer with uh, someone who's on um, console, for example, but it's a single battle pass, an item you get in mobile, you can then go home and use that item in console. It's just like this interconnected experience. And I believe at the end of the day, I feel like EA is making the right call here of not trying to pursue Battlefield that's following the same model of Apex, especially with such a massive competitor like Warzone landing into the market this year. We'll have to see. Well, I'm really curious to see if EA is going to pick up um, these mobile games, change them around and try to release them again. I'm not entirely sure based on 
how yeah. leadership has connected with mobile in their previous earnings. Yeah, I think they'll need another big reset in EA Mobile. Um, is the way I see it. Uh, <laughs> it's just it's just been really hard. the The more interesting question that's not even about EA to me is just what is Activision going to do with Call of Duty on mobile? Like, if Warzone works, are they going to shut down Call of Duty Mobile? <laughs> and, and and funnel. They have stated in- that they are. They have stated that they will not shut down Call of Duty Mobile. Uh, like I can understand wanting to rely less on like partners, but I don't know. It, it's weird. Okay, we'll jump into the next earnings, uh, which is Microsoft with David. All right, here we go. So um, for the three months uh, ending thirty uh, first of December of uh, last year, the gaming segment I uh, was about $4.7 billion of revenue, which was a uh, 13% decline from the, the, prior, the prior year. Um, I, yeah, it's been a tough, I think the comps versus 2021 have been tough for the games industry across the board. Um, I think it's driven by a few things. Obviously, you're comparing it with a, uh, a pandemic year where engagement and revenue across all kinds of digital sectors was obviously much higher. Um, I think it's compounded by the relative paucity of high profile releases uh, on, uh, on, on, on console in 2022. Um, and uh, so I, I, I just sort of don't, I, I don't, I don't overly read into that. Um, but there were a few things that are, well, before I before I go on, me uh, curious to hear your your take on the on the top line. Sure, I mean, I, I guess from from my point of view, it's not it's not too surprising. Um, the software part being down in particular is not too surprising because it just kind of reflects the fact that their first party titles have been lackluster and third party like all around console. You know, the past few months has been um, more more lacking, just like. In 2022, a fewer releases and such. Uh, the part that stands out the most to me is maybe a bit more concerning is the hardware side. Just seeing how f- how how much that has fallen <laughs> so early in the console cycle, where probably you know if you know if all supply chain issues are solved, PlayStation would see the opposite of that. They'd be seeing more growth versus decline. And so um, so yeah, that that stands out to me as maybe a bit more concerning. Um, when you kind of look at that, and then Game Pass as like the only piece of the puzzle that really is growing, maybe isn't too surprising. But yeah, the hardware piece is more the 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 line that popped out most to me this time around. I agree. It would it certainly would be a source of concern f- to me to see declining hardware sales. This you know I think we're now two years past the launch of the the, the new generation. So I, I I agree. I would be ex- I would be still expecting. Uh, hardware sales to be growing. I wonder whether there is a, a sort of a the success of. I think Microsoft has a very interesting strategy in games, right? They are, and I think Game Pass is really worth examining uh, quite quite closely. It's been, if you compare, um, yeah, PS Plus to uh, to to Game Pass. Uh, Game Pass has fewer subscribers. I think Game Pass now has. Between twenty, somewhere between twenty-five and, and thirty million subscribers, depending on uh, kind of where you get your information from. Uh, PS Plus is uh, is actually more like forty-five million as of the last uh, quarterly report. Um, but PS Plus has actually been declining, where where uh, Game Pass is still growing. And I think that there is a uh, there is a, a degree to which, if you look at the long term, I think that Microsoft is. I, I, if I was making a long-term term, term bet on the success of, of either strategy, I do think that that what Microsoft is doing with with Game Pass is is really powerful. Uh, I think it's also notable if you look at the last few quarterly earnings. Um, it is notable that they've made several comments over the past two, three, four earnings calls that uh, so there have been some declines actually in third-party software sales in the Xbox marketplace. But all of that has been more than offset by the growth in Game Pass, which tells me that they are being very successful in in creating a uh, 
uh, a real magnet for people's time, attention, and money in Game Pass. And I think it's going to be, and, and the more successful they are with that, and as they continue to grow across console, uh, across uh, platforms beyond the actual Xbox hardware, I think the the import the relative importance of hardware sales, which you know are low to negative margin, usually this early in the life cycle. Um, you know, I think that the hardware becomes a less important piece of the puzzle. Yeah, I think it's the the hardware piece is a very interesting point. Um, I think it's it's worth you know not under uh, kind of undermining the, the supply chain issues because that has definitely hit uh, a lot. You know, you know we've seen kind of those ripple effects just keep keep um, resonating throughout sales in in general. But I think that uh, there's also the the element of um, content and hardware kind of working in in tandem to sell you know exclusives and like big launches drive uh also the desire for you know hardware and and buying the the console and we didn't really see that much in 2022 in terms of, especially at the end of the year in terms of like big splashy launches that would drive you know both the uh you know software like the game sales plus the hardware revenue that just like give uh that traditional console model the the end of year boosts that they they tend to see um in addition to what you were saying david i think it is very interesting that microsoft is kind of betting on this not relying on hardware as much and being able to just you know go across PC, PC and console and really having kind of that that broader reach that doesn't rely as much on hardware. So I think it is there's there's a lot of things there that are kind of working in tandem that I think it, if they're successful, it's going to be very interesting because I think we're going to see my prediction would be this very like harsher re- decline on hardware revenue. But again, like retaining their uh subscriber subscriber base for the long run a much more stable revenue um kind of month to month instead of having kind of these waves that come in, in like at the end of the year and just kind of stabilizing their game revenue so i think it is there there it feels like they are betting pretty big on on that on on cloud gaming on uh you know potentially moving as uh, relying as much on console sales and like just having kind of like that close ecosystem. And, uh, you know, they have the in right with like windows, like they can put, uh, this on like in front of like so many more people than, than just whoever would buy a, um, an Xbox. I actually would disagree with your first point, Tammy, on the supply chain stuff. I actually think at this point, these companies are largely moving past the supply chain issues. So weakness there is actually truer weakness. Um, But I think you're 100% right on your point about they're moving beyond just kind of their own pure hardware ecosystem. Although still at this stage, um, I mean, having less hardware sales is a sign of losing market share, which is a result of the other point you were making about the interplay of content and hardware. And I think like that is their biggest opportunity by far to have that interplay with their content across their entire ecosystem of their hardware, other hardware, like new business model, connecting it to the cloud, all of that kind of thing. Um, But that also right now is their biggest problem, right? Which is that their first party content has um, underperformed uh, basically everyone's expectations so far. And part of that is because, you know, big games have been pushed back, right? Uh, like Starfield in particular was supposed to launch uh, last quarter. And now it's a question of if it's even going to launch in 2023 as like the biggest, you know, next tentpole for Game Pass. Um, Redfall is probably the next and also got pushed from last year to it will launch this year. But even even beyond that, um, it's sort of, you know, everyone has seen, hey, Microsoft has acquired all of these studios. Where are all the new games coming from them? And I think some of that concern is probably overstated a bit, you know, because games just take time 
to make. And as we, we even saw like a, a shadow drop of, I think it was called like Hi-Fi Rush or something like this past mm-hmm. week. And that's not a game that's going to like make or break, you know, Game Pass as a whole as a huge temple. But it's it still shows that like they're, you know, coming out with new solid games that people can enjoy. But solving for like, hey, we got to get like this, this lineup of like the AAA games and to to not just benefit Game Pass, but like in comparison to the PlayStation's ecosystem too, having those first party more exclusive titles is what will also push hardware sales as well. And obviously, like a, a the huge thing here too is just like the Activision deal. Like if they can pull that off, like in a snap that solves you know a big chunk of those problems with with Game Pass. The risk is that that doesn't happen, and they'll have wasted a year and a half of chasing after after this deal that didn't work and then they'll have to while sony has been making moves on the side and then they'll have to start making probably like smaller acquisitions and stuff and it just drags out over a longer period of time and the success is slower to come even if the business model is interesting aaron Um, how do they sorry how do they solve the problem if the counter of making the acquisition is that they can't have the exclusivity well i think it it would be more because like Activision is too big and maybe Call of Duty specifically is too big. Um, I don't think that regulators would necessarily say no to other smaller deals in the same way that, like they haven't said no to Sony, right? Like acquiring um, like a Bungie or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. There might be more scrutiny with more deals, but I think that Activision is just like a tier above the rest in terms of its size and, and impact. Um, and so yeah, it's I think it's still a coin flip of whether that goes through. But but yeah, the risk there is just like the <laughs> the time that went into that that has it that could have been going to other things to increase the value of Game Pass and the Xbox ecosystem as a whole. Well, I think you know it's a it's a bet worth making, right? I think it's even if even if uh, you know, the the regulators don't allow the deal to pan out, it's, uh, it's certainly worth worth Microsoft's time. I think I agree with with everything you say, Aaron. I just sort of want to state the obvious which is game development takes a really long time and you know the sony's success with first party is the outcome of at this point decades of uh acquisitions and uh smart management of 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 the studio organization and um you know i think the the team at microsoft they they have a very i think their their plan makes a lot of sense. It just it just takes a lot of time, and I I do think I'm I'm a little more bullish on the. Um, I think staff. I think we will see Starfield this year, and um, I I suspect you know, unless it really ends up being a bad game, which I I think is unlikely because it's just very hot. Like at this scale, you just don't take that risk. <laughs> you know, there's the the the, te- the resources that Microsoft has for 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 testing and tweaking are, are, are pretty insane. Um, you know, I, I think 2023 is going to look a lot better from a release perspective than 2022 did. And uh, beyond that, yeah, we'll see. I agree with you. The Activision acquisition is, uh, is, 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 is really important to them. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they would not be prohibited from having maybe maybe Call of Duty has to stay cross-platform for its entire history of that franchise, but you know franchises you know wax and wane, and uh, you know you're you're buying also the into the new things that no one knows about yet too. The only game that will make me buy an Xbox so far is Starfield, so. I won't spend my consumer money until that's out. Bold, bold statement. I, the the one thing I, I do I do want to emphasize on what David said is I think that these these acquisitions, um, smart management of studios. You, you said it really well, David. I think it is a crucial and like pivotal point. So it's like step one is securing these acquisitions that can can really bolster up the 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 company and like the offering. But then from there, it really is the smart uh, management and integration, while also letting the teams, you know, game dev. You said it's hard; it takes time. So you also have to you know, let the teams do what they've already been doing well. Um, so I think it, it's not only like oh, secure the acquisition; they'll they'll be in a good spot. But it's like now you need to execute that very well. And by all accounts, Xbox under Phil Spencer does a 
really good job of um, supporting and staying out of the way of their founders of the studios that they acquire. I, you know, I know several of them, and uh, you know, people are pretty happy over there, which generally bodes well for the output. That's that's very promising. <laughs> <laughs> so before we move on then to the the next discussion topic, uh, a summary of the takeaways is that. Hardware sales are still linked to exclusive titles that attract those purchases. Um, video games take a really long time to make, and so Microsoft might need to make some more acquisitions to bolster that pipeline. And games are already a hits-driven business, but it sounds like with lack of time, um, it's you're either a massive hit or you're not. we got to talk yeah. about esports. Um, yeah. But I'm just proud that we didn't go on a regulatory rant talking about... Um, Talking about Xbox and Activision, that might be a first time, at least for me. So I'll, I'll pat myself on the back for for that. But um, uh, but yeah, let's talk about esports. I'm going to kind of break my own rule on this one. This is probably just like an update on the state of esports. We can kind of talk about um, like what's working and what's not. Really, this this topic was started because we've seen lots of issues in the esports world over the past couple of weeks. Um, Phase has been facing financial difficulties after essentially a failed SPAC. Um, teams in the Overwatch League are suing the league for financial relief because they just haven't been successful um, in, in meeting promises of revenue. And even a company like 100 Thieves, which is about as strong as an, as an esports company gets in terms of a, like a, a strong brand and diverse revenue strains, they've been conducting layoffs. And so it all kind of raises the question of whether this is the norm or the exception. Is trouble brewing across the esports world? And as I said, this is a, a big topic, but I think that like the answer is a mix. Like, yes, there is trouble, but esports is not going anywhere. And there certainly can be exceptionally successful ecosystem participants. And <clears throat> of course, there are a ton of caveats, right? Every game is different. Many business models are at play in this, this field. And even every region is different too. So what we'll see in North America or Europe will just be completely different from what's going on in China, for example. But, you know, I'll take a, a quick Western bent and how we approach this. Um, and I guess the first thing to remember about esports is that it's fundamentally different from sports in two key ways. One, it's obviously digital, which means that it will always have a more digital viewership bent. It can be updated differently as a game, and it likely faces more competition as a result since everything is accessible to everyone. Um, all the time and barriers to entry to get started are very low since you just need a phone or a computer or a console, right? Um, and the second difference, whereas in physical sports, no one owns basketball or baseball or soccer or football, um, and instead leagues as businesses form around sports and can compete. In esports, the publisher owns the game, right? Which means not only do they set the terms and often not allow competition, but it also means esports is always secondary to the larger business of catering to the mass market of players. And esports, therefore, is more of a marketing and engagement tactic than a revenue driver, something meant to be run as a super profitable ecosystem, which means that it plays out in different ways in different business models, right? So some publishers don't want to manage esports, so they essentially outsource it to the ESLs, MLGs of the world. Some do it, but become like Fortnite, where there are prize pools for events, but little consistency around the big stuff. Like Fortnite only hosted its World Cup once in 2019. And then there are the publishers who want to build and manage their own leagues, which have higher buy-ins and more limited spots, but theoretically come with more upside if the lead succeeds. And as we've seen in many cases, especially with Activision Blizzard, with Overwatch and Call of Duty, publisher, uh, I guess you could call it greed or overreach, um, and broader incentives can destroy the ROI for the teams that rely on them. And then if you look at the teams themselves, which typically are brands that cover multiple esports, we've essentially learned that just competing in esports is not a good enough business model on its own. Prize winnings are inconsistent. Ticketing is naturally lower for a digital sport. <clears throat> uh, brand partnerships are fine, but can only go so far. Talent costs have risen and franchise leagues um, are hit and miss in their ability to create value for everyone in the ecosystem through things like broadcast rights or, or league sponsors, right? So 
it's no surprise that esports orgs have tried to extend their reach further. Many have brought on content creators to fil- further build their fan base. They launch merch to various degrees, and some are trying to build new business lines in other ways. And this makes sense when you realize that um, successful esports orgs are basically defined by the number of fans they have times the average revenue of those fans on top of any uh, like prize franchise winnings. Um, but it's incredibly difficult to maximize that equation because it's very difficult to build competitive advantage when there's so many teams doing the same thing. Content as a business is tough to scale and executing across multiple sub-businesses is hard on top of just you know winning, right? Um, so it's not surprising that while a handful of orgs like 100 Thieves, are, which is doing really interesting things, most teams are really struggling. Um, and in short, I think like that's the way it's going to be. Esports as a whole can still grow as gaming grows. Um, viewership can rise. Revenue across ecosystems can rise. And publishers and esports um, orgs can all get smarter. But managing long-lasting games is hard. <laughs> and building businesses that rely on publishers is a tough place to be. And building competitive advantage when everyone is trying to do the same thing is really, really hard. So I think outsized success will be more the exception than the rule here. Um, so anyways, that's sort of the context I wanted to set, but I'll stop talking. And I'll just hand it over to um, to hear, do you think I'm right or wrong? Or um, in your own eyes, like, are there other parts of this ecosystem that are broken? Or are there parts that maybe don't get enough attention and actually are, you know, quietly succeeding? So I think there's, there's, I agree with uh, a lot of what you said, Aaron. I think it is a huge part of, of esports is that the, there has not been a, there's not a business model that has been proven to be successful. So as you were saying, like there's all these disparate pieces in terms of business models. A lot of the esports orgs have relied on VC funding, on crypto funding, um, those two are very shaky right now, right? So, you know, part of the the trouble that we're, we're seeing right now brewing is also driven by those market conditions. So it's, it's very, like on top of like all of the complications that you went through, there's also that part of like, you know, if they can't monetize on uh, the, the competitions themselves or, you know, generate that revenue there, they're getting funding, that funding is running uh, out. And at that point we have, you know, left revenue over like advertising, merchandising, uh, you know, what we see 100 Thieves do with merch and products, uh, you know, really selling the image of the the esports players. So I think like that really jumps to the next element that you did not touch on, which I think it's, it's crucial to talk about when we talk about esports is that the players, um, you know, is also an element. So you have the game, you have the players. And while there's some um, players that have been successful in like building multi-year careers, they're also in kind of like this very precarious situation where they don't get paid enough. They're overworked. Um, They get exchanged back and forth as if it was nothing. So the conditions for them are not great. And they're one of like, if, if you really go into like the creator space, like they're like the, they could be one of the strongest brands, like, like one of the strongest uh, things that you're merchandising and selling is that image of like those those players or creators that you're bringing onto your uh, team and your brand. But you know, right now they can just you know be in one team one day, be in another team another day, and then you know be written off the next day. Um, so I think there's there's so many elements there that are just like make the ecosystem very very complex in even um, being able to you know have a a repeatable business model. Yeah, so this is what makes me quite interested in what Guild of Guardians is trying to do with esports, and so they're connecting blockchain and they essentially created heroes for the game that are a reflection of the esports team and they personify the people that are in the team and they're doing an exclusive limited drop where you can buy into that they're having merch and then if you have a hero 
you might be part of this group that gets VIP access to tournaments. And so it's, it's creating this a revenue stream. I'm not sure about the details of how all of that is shared with the teams, but it's trying to create that revenue stream that the teams themselves can have in connection with the game. And I think apart from that, I just think that the franchise model is broken. Again, I've not, I'm not fully into it, but from everything that I've read, I just can't understand how the franchise model can become a profitable business for a team. And so the only way I see it working is if owning an esports team is like in traditional sports, someone who's extremely rich and they find it fun in managing the team. And so you're not expecting it to be profitable. You're expecting to get some fun out of it, you know, similar to what F1 is. I think it could work if the buy-ins and the costs associated were way down. I think the ROI is just broken with a lot of how with a lot of how these leagues were initially set up. Um, but really quickly on Guild of Guardians, and I want to hear David's thoughts on all of this too. What's interesting to me about that is like what they're doing isn't esports, right? Like it's esports teams just using their brand for something that has nothing to do with esports, right? Which is kind of what I was saying. Like you build up your fans and then you increase, you know, like the average revenue per fan by like pointing them in all of these different ways. Um, and this is just like yet another one of those ways that, you know, esports teams are just trying to capitalize on like having an audience, right? And I think it could be interesting. There's still like, maybe it'll be good for the esports teams and be good for um, Guild of Guardians. And maybe we'll see similar things be replicated elsewhere, but it's not esports, right? Um, and so I think like like that, you know, says, says a lot too, just like in order to thrive, they just have to point people in more directions and they're just kind of scrambling to figure out which directions are the best and most sustainable. But anyways, David, curious to hear your thoughts on all this. So you know that like Twitter meme that talking about like X was a zero interest rate phenomenon? Uh, yes. I, I, I'm sort of, I, I feel like I'm being, I'm being slightly facetious, but uh, you know, I sort of feel like esports was a zero interest rate phenomenon, which is really a snarky way of saying that I think your comments about the fundamental challenges of the business model are, are have never been solved, um, and that was easier to paper over in a time of you know easy money, and a lot of money went into you know in some ways analogous to to to, to Web three, a lot of money flowed into you know, into into the space, uh, including some from traditional sports, I think, and you know to your point, as a Business model, I you know, I sort of the one of my frameworks for thinking about this stuff is uh, the seven powers framework, which is really a way of talking about you know sustainable competitive adv advantage, and none of these organizations have that. You could argue that some have you know have powerful brands, and I think the best of them do, but I think there are real limits. And as you say, in in esports, you serve at the pleasure of the king, which is the you know, the publisher, and they are always going to do, understandably, what is in the long-term best interests of, of the game. And if there are big new opportunities to capture, then they are going to take the lion's share of the value. And, and I think that's, I have yet to see uh, a, a model that justified the valuations that, and the, that some of these companies were seeing and the money that was flowing into them. And, you know, I think until, until that changes, it's going to be really hard. I think you're 100% right about so much of esports being a zero interest rate phenomenon. That's a really good way um, to put it. But I guess I want to uh, kind of segue this to just a final question to what, um, building on what you were just saying about the publisher incentive to do its best for the game. <clears throat> if you are a publisher or a developer making a game that wants to tackle esports, I think we've seen a lot of examples of different ways you could go down how hands-on or hands-off you want to be or how you want to structure going the franchise route or not. Um, but I, I'm curious just to hear your takes on like what like what have we learned and if you were going to launch like your own as a game builder going to launch into esports, how, how would you think about it or like what would you do differently based on now what we know from from the past? Games are built to make money through their through their players. You get to the market, especially if it's a free-to-pay monetization, subscription monetization, you're building the game for them. 
But and what I've seen is that currently the games that are being used mostly for esports or games that use esports as marketing, they're not actually built and balanced and supported in to build a sustainable long-term esports game. And until we've seen a company that that is their sole primary reason for developing this game, and that's how they treat maintaining it, even how you release and how you update the patches and how you do the balancing of the meta and the and the weapons, for example. I think if I if I were to do a company that's trying, uh, sorry, I'm trying to build a game that is sole focus is uh, to create a profitable esports. That's where I'd start. I. I, I I agree with that take, and I think we are going to see if 100 Thieves actually delivers on that, because they are building a game with content creators, uh, and in theory, with kind of that mentality as, as a foundation. You know, proof is in the, in the execution if it actually puts that as, as the intent, like primary intent or the primary pillar of the game. Or if it, you know, we we go back to, you know, we're just gonna throw our our known monetization like player monetization playbooks at the game, and we, you know, end up with like some slight variation, that it's gonna run into the same problems as all the games that are being used for for esports right now. Cool. I would just add that I think what what we learned from Activision Blizzard is to maybe just be less greedy and to treat esports less as like a revenue driver and to maybe recognize that it's okay to actually be more of a cost center or more of a break-even center because the the value that you can get from esports more is about just building long-term engagement with, with people, right? And if anything, you want to design the economics of your league um, to be beneficial for all of the people in it so that they are incentivized to to build as much as they can around it, you know, uh, you know, building awesome content around what they're doing, trying to build engagement with their fans as much as possible to point people in this direction. Um, and I, I don't actually think that the franchise model is necessarily broken in and of itself. I just think that if you were to to take it more in a different direction that focused more on like win-wins from day one uh, for all stakeholders across the ecosystem, if anything, making it a bigger win for the other stakeholders, um, that's that's more the model that would bring you longer term, bigger success just through higher engagement of players, spending more and paying more attention for a much longer period of time. I think that's but, really well. I think that's really well said, Aaron. I mean, I, I completely agree with you. Like esports games that can be esports are all forever games, and they all live within this acquisition retention, monetization framework. And it, it seems to me that a really well-run, robust esports scene around your game is, to me, is, is, is of its biggest use in the retention and engagement bucket more than a direct trying to over-monetize it. Uh, I think that's really well said. I think what 100 Thieves is doing with the building and actually building a game is a really bold move. And it's clearly a you know they've seen they, they've seen the writing on the wall as much as anyone else, and it's a really bold attempt to create some real leverage for their business. And I'm I'm, I, I'm excited to see what they do. It's making games is hard, uh, especially when you you don't have that in your DNA as an organization to start with. But there are yeah, there's, there's some good folks over there, so I, I, I wish them wish them all the best on that. Yeah, and and just to to close, uh, I think Rocket League is is also doing, uh, you know, they haven't gotten in the way too much. And you see like a very positive, you know, community, just to, to what you're saying, David, of like looking around, around the game, uh, you know, the competitions, the esports, like it is a much, like a very positive community. And you have, you know, even um, teams like Moist that they lose, they talk about it very openly, lose six figures a month as an organization, but they're okay burning money. They like that's mm -hmm. it's part of what they're they're doing as part of you know just continue on really elevating esports because they care about elevating esports. Another example is PUBG Mobile with their grassroots championships. Okay, shall we move in then to play Tika? Any wrap up comments? 
No, that's yeah. it. Let's let's move over. Let's do it. Okay, so a quick recap of last week's discussion. We're looking at Playtica's proposal to acquire Rovio. We we um, reached the conclusion that they made such a move because Playtica has an aging portfolio and they're struggling to develop new games to rejuvenate it. Rovio is a stable, consistent, and healthy performing company that would bring stability to Playtica. But even more importantly, it will bring uh, a new games pipeline that Rovio has established um, into their portfolio because Playtica desperately needs it. And then the, the day after we had the discussion, there was an announcement about Playtica integrating Web3 into Slotomania, which is their second best performing game. And I thought that was really interesting. I wanted to, wanted to dive into it. So it could help them resolve this problem of their aging portfolio by adding a new revenue stream and also extending the life cycle of their existing games. So the way that they're doing the integration is working with a company called uh, Recur, Recur, I struggle to pronounce it, that is focused on building a Web3 platform, backend tools, so that companies can just plug and play and focus on what they do best, which in this case is making games, and not having to take care of all the technology of Web3. Um, and something that I found extremely interesting is that nowhere do you read NFT, crypto, Ethereum, there's no mention of it. It's about collecting symbols, collecting your slots and building these challenges and trading and buying the symbols that you need because the higher rarity the symbols you have, the higher rarity the slots machine you're going to build. And then the rewards of completing these challenges um, is that you actually earn soft and hard currency to then use within Slotomania and is based on how many players engage with your slots. So I assume... Uh, yeah, the, you want to engage the higher rarity ones because they, they will give you more rewards. And they're also doing an integration with uh, physical rewards of completing these challenges. Uh, for example, getting merch, getting invitations to exclusive events, and they have some other things under, under wraps. So I wanted to get your take on considering how they're approaching the integration of Web3 with Sodomania. What are your thoughts on the risks of doing that with your second best portfolio uh, game? And do you think it's going to work? Do you know what Recur is built on? Maybe before we answer that, like I I'm just wondering because I didn't see it. Is it actually blockchain based? Um, so I actually ran through Recur's website and they make mention about being ready uh, for multiple chains and uh, being very agnostic. It does mention it's a Web3 experience. So the, the Recur product itself doesn't talk that much about blockchain and crypto, which could be their marketing positioning. I believe it's blockchain, but I don't see specifics about what it's built on and how it works, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I just thought it was interesting uh, that they, uh, you know, they don't use the lingo, and I guess that's yeah. just knowing their audience. And in many ways, is probably the way it, it should be. A lot of the lingo and tech, you know, just fades into the background, and the players can benefit from whatever the, you know, the the use cases and in-game benefits are. So that makes sense. Um, I'll just give my really quick take, and I'm curious what others think because I don't, I don't really know. To me, um, <clears throat> I mean, I think the risk is somewhat mitigated because the implementation is more subtle than what we've seen elsewhere. And Playtica isn't leaning into play to earn or a heavily tokenized economy. It seems like it's embedding NFTs. It's not calling NFTs um, kind of into the experience. And so kind of through that, it seems to be more of just like a like an ARPU play more than anything. Because um, we know, especially after last week's roundtable, that Playtica has struggled <laughs> in many ways to find new games or even acquire successfully. So um, it makes sense to maybe double down on what's already working and to try to get even more out of it. But instead of just kind of squeezing players even more through the existing systems, maybe adding a, like a new economic layer on top of that is a way to untap something new. And this could be a way to do that. I I don't know <laughs> exactly how it'll work in this case. And I don't know if it'll translate to other games because I also read that they said, you know, quote, four games with Web3 experiences mm -hmm. will launch by the end of the year. So the, I, they're thinking about this beyond even just Slotomania as like a full company strategy that will probably extend beyond Casino too. So I don't know. I don't know where to where to take that, but it's uh, it's very interesting. And I think the subtleness is something that I'm more encouraged by 
um, mm-hmm. than you know creating like a full ecosystem token or something like that. But um, yeah, I don't know. I'm curious yeah, to see how it plays out. And we see the in- the industry of Web3 gaming converging on this point. Immutable announced uh, on Wednesday of their passport, which makes it seamless. You sign up with your social login. So hiding that whole layer and the steps of being a blockchain game is where it's going to be. And I'm more bullish about Playtika's strategy here because especially if they leverage their existing casino, social casino portfolio. And looking at Slotomania's KPIs, it's just the revenue has just been on steady decline. And so being able to go back to, I believe it was an estimated 600K active users that are already accustomed to casinos, the the usage of real money and not just buying and earning the, the currency in game no mention of crypto, it's just a different way for you to engage with an existing game by having a trading mechanic that uses uh, USD. But as as you said, we'll have to wait and see of how it plays out. I'm extremely curious to see what the uptake is going to be of the, let's call them Web2 gamers, of utilizing a Web3 gaming design without it being obvious of what it is. Okay, well, we're going to wrap up the episode there. Um, David, Aaron, Tammy, thank you so much for joining today. It's always nice to have you on. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can help us reach others by subscribing, leave a comment. Uh, We always love hearing from you. You can also sign up to the Navic Digest newsletter, and you can listen to our other podcast content with our industry leader interviews and the Crypto Corner. Thank you so much, everyone, and we'll see you next week. (laughs) 